and welcome to Crypto Facto with Josh Clayman. I'm your host, Josh, from the global law firm Linklaters. On this podcast, you'll hear hot takes from me and sometimes from special guests on some of the hottest topics affecting the digital assets and tech spaces. Of course, these are our personal views only, and nothing said here constitutes legal advice, investment advice, or any other kind of advice, but we still think it's interesting. So hold on tight and let's get to it. Wow, once again, so much has happened since our last podcast. And today we're extremely lucky to have my amazing colleague, Jeff Cohen, who's a partner in Linklater's Capital Markets Group, join us today for Crypto Facto. Um, we, are, we are very excited to discuss something that has the whole digital assets market literally around the world buzzing. And that is the, the summary judgment order yesterday in the Ripple case. This has been long awaited and boy, it was a bit surprising in many ways. So maybe we can we can step back for a second. Um, Jeff, I don't know if you wanna say hi for a moment before I give a little background on the Ripple case and we launch into things. Hi, Josh. Let's get right to it though. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, so as people may recall, um, in, on December 22nd, 2020, the SEC sued Ripple Labs on what was the last day of Jay Clayton's tenure. It was a parting shot against one of the most popular digital assets, which is XRP. And the allegations included that since 2013, between the time of 2013 and 2020, it was alleged by the SEC that Ripple Labs and two of its principals had been selling over 1.3 billion in ongoing unregistered in an ongoing unregistered securities offering. So this it's important to just bear in mind. Ripple Labs was founded in 2012. This was way before we had the term ICO, initial coin offering. You know, so it was a very different time. And what we had yesterday was a decision, not a trial decision, but it was a decision as a matter of law. Uh, there were as many may know, there were cross motions for summary judgment filed by both Ripple Labs and the defendants and also the SEC, each seeking um, judgment from the court saying, look, this doesn't need to go to trial. It's clear, you know, we should win as a matter of law. There's no genuine dispute as to any material fact, and we're entitled to judgment as a matter of law. And what did the judge do here? Well, she really, in many ways, split the baby. And that was a bit surprising. Now, there are a number of important points that we'll go through um, through this, this order that came out yesterday, um, and also some other points that we'll discuss you know, in general about the state of the market and, and what could happen next. But some of the important findings in this case, um, one, we'll just say, and, and there are many, so an important point right off the bat is that the judge in this case, Judge Annalisa Torres, uh, who's a district court judge, she rejected the defendant's, quote, essential ingredients test that they had put forth, putting rest to the idea or the theory, at least in this case, that an investment contract has to be like a normal contract. And we'll go into all of these in greater detail. And then this is where it really, truly gets interesting. Uh, Judge Torres 
does a very fascinating thing here. She splits the different kinds of primary sales and she invokes telegram and some language from the telegram case and the court, which was, you know, decided by another court in the same district and quotes that token in that case, the digital asset was described as little more than an alphanumeric cryptographic sequence. This case presents a scheme to evaluate it, to be evaluated under Howie that consists of the full set of contracts, expectations, and understanding centered on the sales and distributions of the, in that case, the gram, right? And so it's very interesting just right off the bat because the SEC had described XRP as a digital asset security. And so this distinction was made by Judge Torres. And she takes a look at these various different kinds of schemes, right? And divides them into a number of, of different categories. One she calls institutional sales. And those were sales um, in the case of Ripple. And of course, the facts of every case will be somewhat different or, or very different. Um, that these sales were done by way of normal purchase contracts to institutional buyers, including, for example, hedge funds or, or venture capital funds. And she says that they violated section five. Um, here, they knew the identity of a seller. These were bargained for exchanges. And in her view, they met the, the various prongs of the Howey test, which is the test for whether an investment contract exists. Now, she separates out this idea of primary sales across platforms using algorithms where buyers don't necessarily know whom they're, from whom they're buying and vice versa. And she basically concludes, and we'll go into this in greater detail, that because the buyers don't really have reason to see this reasonably as an investment in securities, it fails the Howey test. Uh, very interestingly, although in footnote 16, the court declines to comment on secondary sales, um, one of the things that Judge Torres says, Torres says is that the individuals who bought XRP in these programmatic sales, meaning on the platforms pursuant to the algorithms, you know, blind bid asks, they didn't invest, i.e. give money to Ripple, right? Other than I believe that they quoted about 1% was purchased from Ripple. And Per Judge Torres, the economic reality was that the purchasers in the programmatic sales didn't know the identity of those from whom they were purchasing, you know, and that they may not have understood that Ripple's marketing or um, the principles of Ripple's marketing as being a promise or undertaking to increase the value of XRP. It's a really interesting result. Now, with respect to other distributions, one of the key findings here by Judge Torres was that sales to employees essentially that they didn't satisfy the investment of money prong, right? And that these were not, that these sales to employees or providing employee compensation, that does not involve um, the offer and sale of securities here. And similarly, sales by the two principals over platforms, they did not involve sales of securities either. Now, Another really important point, um, which you know could have far-reaching implications, relates to Ripple's due process and fair notice defenses. Um, and on those points, Ripple does not prevail. So, you know, the court actually quotes from certain guidance that Ripple received from its lawyers in 2012 
that applied the Howey test way back then. Now, they may have applied it slightly differently from, from the view that, that the SEC at least may take now. But the idea is that even back then, long, five years perhaps before the Dow report, um, there was notice potentially that you know the Howey test would be applicable to digital assets. Finally, uh, certain, certain aspects of this case will go to trial. So the aiding and abetting, the question of whether the principals were aiding and abetting um, the Section 5 violations by Ripple Labs with respect to institutional sales, that will go to trial. So that's a lot to, to just put forth at this beginning. And Jeff, where does this lead us? We can certainly go into many of these different points. That was just setting a baseline understanding. But I'd love to hear your thoughts because I know you you have a lot. Well, I think uh, thanks, Josh, and that's that's a great summary of of what happened in the order. Um, but I think the question of what the answer to the question where it leaves us is uh, in the land of disappointment, and I think that view would be shared by almost everyone because, and maybe that's what the judge intended. You know, people often say, well. If everyone thinks it's if both the if both sides are unhappy with the resolution, then maybe it was the right resolution after all. But I don't think uh, that maxim applies here, and I think the intellectual um, uh, inconsistency um, uh, is is more problematic than uh, than than beneficial. So the most I think the crucial thing here uh, is this notion that the private uh, that the private so-called institutional sales somehow meet the Howey definitions and the platform sales bizarrely do not meet the Howey definition. Uh, just to go over the Howey definition um, briefly, there are basically four elements. Um, and it's basically, you know, was this a sale of a security? Well, if it doesn't meet any of the other terms in the definition of security, it might be an investment contract. And an investment contract is a security if it is, or I should say, the sale of an investment contract is a security if it involves one, an investment of money, two, in a common enterprise, three, with the expectation of profit four, to be derived from the efforts of others. And what the judge did here is, is you know, splice the, is read the words very literally, and in my view, mistakenly, to conclude that the platform sales don't necessarily constitute an investment of money in a common enterprise, because they don't know where their money is going. The buyers didn't know where their money is going, unlike the buyers in the uh, in direct institutional sales. Now, I just think that's a fundamental misapplication of the Howey test that is too hung up on the words in the test. Because when you buy Apple stock, most people who buy Apple stock on an exchange would view that as an investment in Apple, whether or not, in fact, they know they know perfectly well that the proceeds are not going to Apple. It's a secondary sale, but that is still an investment in money. I don't think anybody has any 
doubt about that. And I think that's the, that is legally true. So the fact that they don't know that the money is going to the, the, the issuer or the potential common enterprise uh, seems completely irrelevant. It, and there are two things wrong with it. One, it imposes a subjective test rather than objective test. So it's asking whether the buyer thinks of their investment as an investment in a common enterprise. And second of all, even on the objective, so if we switch to the objective side of things, it's just wrong. It is an investment in a common enterprise, both objectively and subjectively. And I think the judge just got this really wrong and surprisingly so because of how glaring an error it is. Yeah, Um, I mean- Unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to get you to disagree, but if you can- if you can muster a little disagreement, by all means, do so. I mean, I I don't disagree. What I do think, though, is and and actually, I have a bunch of thoughts about this in general about a lot of the the aspects of this decision. But I do think what's really interesting, partly about this case, stepping back for a moment, is just that these are ongoing sales and ongoing primary sales. I feel that if it had been brought at a time that addressed only initial sales or if it had a more traditional ICO, right? That there that some of these questions would not be as tortured, right? Because you would have this large offering, right, to both institutional and others at one time. And it would be much more clear because I think even though these are phrased as institutional sales, at least from the views that I've generally heard and in my personal view, I think that that this idea of a direct contract would also apply in the case of an ICO to retail, not just to sophisticated buyers. But with respect to the the programmatic sales as well, I mean, the idea of efforts of others, it doesn't say efforts of sellers, right? And I think anyone in the market, and I believe that, you know, Preston Burns' article in in Coindesk, um, I I agree with this, this point that he raises, which is, you know, if you're in the market, you might not know you're you're purchasing from Ripple, right? But you know that Ripple is the party responsible for building out, you know, who is responsible for any sort of future success, um, some would say, I should say, I should caveat that, um, for for XRP and for for the success and use of XRP. And so I think the question of who are the sellers, that's a different question. And that's not really required by, by the Howey test, to my knowledge, and also in the case in Telegram. I mean, there, the court, which is in the same district, right? Judge Castell was saying, look, these were the essential entrepreneurial and managerial efforts of Telegram, not the entrepreneurial and managerial efforts of intermediaries who were selling Telegram South contracts, yeah. right? And so I, I think just looking through that, whether or not, and by the way, I just want to make fully clear, I'm not saying that Ripple is responsible for the success of XRP. I'm just saying that's an argument. Yeah. And I I mean, the other thing, even aside from the intellectually unsatisfying um, nature of the decision, from a policy point of view, it's so bizarre that we would say, well... (laughs) It's one thing if you sell to sophisticated individuals like hedge funds and um, and VC funds. That's 
that's a that's a section five violation. But if you just put it on a platform and let retailers and unsuspecting um, investors buy, uh, that's fine. Uh, from a policy point of view, that's completely unsustainable. Um, and I guess that that goes to the question of where we go from here. I mean, I think we want to go back to some other things also. But I mean, I think it's it's too hard to handicap, I guess, whether the SEC is going to um, appeal all of this. There are some very technical issues about whether the case is ripe for appeal, actually, because uh, so in some cases, a court of appeals will say this is not ripe until we've had the trial. Um, so it's not clear whether procedurally an appeal would be permitted at this point, but from the SEC's point of view and from the defendant's point of view, it's unclear um, what the best strategy is. It's a very complex calculation. So it seems to me that the way to think about this uh, at this point is, okay, what if this decision just stands and we go on from here with, this decision in place, because you could also have a settlement. So it's possible that this decision could be the law of the of the the law of the land um, uh, in conjunction with all the other cases, Telegram and so on. Um, and I'm just wondering what I've been thinking about since since I first read it is, okay, how are we and other lawyers going to advise our clients to conduct themselves? in the wake of this ruling. And without giving free advice, uh, just as a matter of prediction, what, what might the market do? So I, I think what we're seeing in the market is that a number of trading platforms, even as of yesterday, had relisted uh, XRP, right? Seeing this as, even though one would say, you know, there was a, a section five violation as a matter of law, right? By Ripple, right. Ripple Labs. Um, right. Nonetheless, I think that trading platforms in the market have seized upon this idea that that the uh, you know the quote that was taken from the Telegram court about the alphanumeric code that that is suggesting that the tokens viewed apart from themselves, I mean viewed apart from the investment contract, are not securities. Nevertheless, yeah. as as footnote 16 notes, the court does not address that because that question wasn't before the court. And I think this leaves us in a in a really problematic place. I, I do think, you know, given the alternatives for how this case could have turned out in the crypto space, I think that generally speaking for token issuers and token platforms, it is, you know, a positive mo movement relative to where it could have been had the SEC won on all of the points. But I, I do think that some of the questions by not addressing the secondary market sales, it does leave open some questions that make it difficult to proceed. So for example, and this is just one of them, if you have a sale of you know, token X, right? And you sell to say VCs pursuant to a sales agreement, this case doesn't address the secondary market sales. And we would say perhaps, should the Howey test be met, that that initial offer and sale is an investment contract. So what happens then? Does a VC who purchase it, like would we just 
would the issuer sell it pursuant to you know a valid exemption from registration, perhaps Reg D or Reg S? And if if Reg D have the the holding period and the Form D filed, et cetera, and all the other requirements. But but what happens to that token? Is the token that had been part of that investment scheme not a security when then traded on the platform? We don't know, and we don't have legending for tokens. And these are fungible tokens. So it's 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 tough. I mean, one wants to say that the court appears to be hinting that once you satisfy the one-year transfer restriction period, that you know what, your investment contract perhaps has has ended and the underlying object, the digital asset, is not a security, yet it doesn't actually say that in the order. And I think that leaves us in a tough position. But Josh, how could, I mean, although she says she's leaving it open, how is it possible that a secondary sale, other than a sort of bilateral secondary sale, but the normal secondary sales, which are on a platform, how, how could those consistently with the, with the order yesterday not be character, not be um, uh, okay, so to speak, under this order, not be a violation of Section 5 because they're not going to satisfy the Howey test because they're not an investment in the in the common enterprise because you're just giving your money to um, you know some other uh, third party uh, who bought it in the first place. Yeah, so I mean, it, I, it I seems agree. To me that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree. I which, agree. Which obviously suggests that the big winner yesterday was neither um, uh, the SEC nor the defendants here, but the platforms, right? The yeah. exchanges. That's what I. That's what I see as well. Although you know, I and I, I a hundred percent agree with you. Even though it's not in the order, it almost makes you wonder: Does the SAF live again? You know, seemed yeah. that the SAF had a, had a death knell in te Telegram, right? And here, if all you have to do is file a Form D and have a transfer restriction period, and you know satisfy the other requirements are you good i mean it it certainly seems like it would be um at least reasonable to to think that nevertheless i do think that that there is a lack of shall we say clarity as a result of this opinion and and whether in fact it it will stand um if appealed and also it is one district court opinion about a very long offering over many years that was ongoing. And I, I I would caution people, not not legal advice, you know, but I would caution people before changing their views if they're issuing a token um, too radically to just assume that that secondary sales will be okay because again, the court never actually addressed that directly. And I just think that that there are, as you noted, you know, questions about, you know, not just policy questions as to whether programmatic sales, if, if you if you don't provide disclosures, if you don't provide a white paper, if you don't provide a contract with terms, you know, isn't our regime supposed to be about disclosure? So, yeah. so I think there are, are a lot of questions, but I, I do agree with you. Um, and I'm trying to, I think just for listeners, we're trying to show all sides, <laughs> you know, we're not, I don't think we're wedded one way or another to these sides, but, but I think in my view, yes, it it was certainly a good decision from the view of the platforms, I would imagine. Although, 
you know, the fair notice defense, you know, if in 2012, the court rejected fair notice for, yeah. for Ripple Labs. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, it's, it, it cuts both ways, I suppose. Yeah, it does. Well, it does undermine some of the platform's um, fair notice defense. Um, uh, but again, that doesn't matter if you take sort of the second part of the opinion, i.e. the opinion that platform sales generally are, are not sales of securities. It doesn't matter whether they have fair notice because they don't fall, they, 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 they lose under the Howey test. So the fair notice argument actually drops away. And everything is, um, uh, you know, it's just the wild west on the platforms and the exchanges. They they have the ability to do what they want. I mean, again, the other thing about this, uh, you know, just moving to larger and larger um, uh, views is that it does validate a little bit, though, though the the criticism of the SEC that regulation by enforcement is a messy way to go about things. And I think the SEC views the landscape as evolving and changing and the SEC is learning about it and the market is learning about it. And that's partly the fear of regulating because they're worried that if they regulate too early, they will not have either understood the landscape well enough or captured the relevant aspects of the landscape. but. Instead, they've got what they're going to have here is a very complicated checkerboard of judicial decisions, um, which give the market a very, very confusing message. Whereas actual make, actually making a rule would at least theoretically give a clearer message. And if that rule gets challenged, then that rule gets challenged. But that's all one process. Instead, we're going to have multiple processes, multiple decisions, and it's very difficult to weave together um, what the regulatory slash judicial view really is and for the market to know what the rules are. And that'll be my platform for making my larger point, which I know you know to expect, which is, which is the 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 sort of elephant in the room that is not that doesn't come up in the Ripple case uh, because partly because um, uh, most of the Ripple papers were submitted before it became as clear that the Supreme Court is serious about it. And that's the major questions doctrine and the, uh, the, the doctrine of Chevron deference and a lot of other terms that we all learned in law school. And then um, if we're fortunate enough not to have to encounter them again, then so be it. But, um, you know, um, in the past, um, for the past 30 years, uh, there's been a notion of deference by the courts to regulatory agencies in interpreting their own statutes. And there was a notion uh, that came from the Chevron case in the 1980s that um, the uh, agencies that were created and given mandates by Congress were experts in the statutes that created them and that they were uh, mandated to enforce. Um, that 
there, there, the um, several of the justices have been hinting for years uh, that Chevron deference uh, is a mistake, and now we have seen the fruit of that uh, of those suggestions with the so-called major questions doctrine, um, which was given um, uh, a, a good a good explanation in uh, EPA versus West Virginia, where the Supreme Court said, okay, the Environmental Protection Agency was created um, to combat pollution, but pollution and climate change are two different things. So whether the EPA can make rules affecting climate change was the issue in the case. And the basic holding was, no, it can't, not without further congressional authorization. And that's the so-called major questions doctrine doctrine that when there's a major question like you know climate change um, the Congress has to speak more clearly to give the EPA authority to legislate uh, so now the question is and we're seeing this in some of the more recent papers in other cases uh, whether there's any application of the major questions doctrine to the whole howie digital assets analysis, and whether courts, whether federal courts and ultimately the Supreme Court are going to accept the argument that this is a major question. Digital assets are, yeah, maybe they're a security, maybe not, they're not a security, but that's too big a question for the SEC to resolve on its own. And until Congress gives them direction, they cannot just arrogate to themselves this huge economy and go ahead and regulate it. And that's the elephant in the room, to my mind, uh, with respect to digital assets over the next, hmm, how many years? It could take a while for that to get litigated. And ultimately, it's likely to go all the way to the Supreme Court. But that's just going to be an area that is really, really interesting and what we all need to watch. Not touched on in this case. Um, yeah. But I think it's it's the hot issue, really. So and I recall you mentioning this, um, Jeff, actually, before I recall anyone else mentioning and invoking um, or or contemplating invoking the major questions doctrine for digital assets back when the EPA um, decision came down. More recently, yeah. we've seen um, similar questions arise in the student loan case um, yeah. where the Supreme Court also relied on the major questions doctrine. And I think what's really interesting is that people have been looking into this doctrine a lot more. And I know you and I have, have discussed this offline and back and forth just in general, but there's a real question about how we're framing the major questions doctrine if we wanna rely on it, right? One of, and we've seen this in some court filings, but we've also seen it in some commentary, including um, an article uh, called The Major Questions Doctrine's Domain by Todd Phillips and Bo Bauman. Um, perhaps I I may not have uh, pronounced that last name correctly, but anyway, it's it's a, a really good paper, which is really interesting. And a few things it points out um, are whether, for example, um, can the major questions doctrine um, require reconsideration of judicial precedents, right? Here, and this is something that the SEC has has raised as well, is a question about whether um, the major questions doctrine and things like that 
have ever been applied to an agency's ability to enforce statutory, what it believes are statutory violations. So I think that's really going to be going to be um, interesting because, you know, for years, the SEC has resisted defining what an investment contract is by statute, right? And that is a judicially created law. That's why we end up with this flexible Howey test. Um, whether some people would like to use a different adjective to describe it is another story. But I think some of the other big questions are how we frame it. So for example, some have said, um, you know, that, you know, the question of whether the Howey test, you know, this investment contract test should be expanded or applied to digital assets. Is that the major question? Well, some say, look, if we have, say, a $3 trillion industry right now in terms of, of token market cap, whatever, or whatever it may be today, right, um, that, you know, the SEC hasn't been going after or characterizing, at least in enforcement actions, either Bitcoin or Ether. Um, in enforcement actions as being investment contracts, holding aside whatever kinds of um, signals in the media Chairman Gensler may, may have given or not given from time to time. And so one may say, well, are the remaining tokens, is that major enough? And so some have suggested that maybe the way to frame the major questions doctrine in this um, area is to say, look, even if you assume that these digital assets are securities, in some instances, if we can't tell from the existing rules and the existing law how to comply, if we essentially have made crypto illegal in the US, maybe that's the major question, as opposed to whether specifically the Howey test and this investment contract test uh, actually works. And so I think that's going to be interesting to watch. Another thing that's come up in commentary is about whether, you know, it, it certainly has been suggested that you know, often the Supreme Court takes these cases when there's a split in the circuit. And so far, we don't have a circuit split. And holding aside the ripple um, order, which was, again, like a split the baby kind of decision, I think the, the SEC has been bringing enforcement actions in particular circuits. And, you know, whether, whether the ripple decision stands or is appealed or is, is overturned someday or whether a different court comes to a different de determination on different facts, um, it will be really interesting to see whether we will have, in fact, some kind of split like that. So I, I agree. We are years away from resolution of this issue. Um, it will take a um, circuit court decision, like, as you say, I think it will take a circuit court decision that the major question doctrine prohibits the SEC from enforcing um, Section Five um, in digital assets cases. Um, that would that would be the um, the launching pad for uh, for the Supreme Court to get to it. It will take years, and there is, you know, unlike constitutional issues, there is a solution, which is legislation. So Absolutely. If there's, it, this is just a matter of legislative of of interpretation of a statute of the words security and investment contract in the Securities Act of 1933 and 34. So Congress can fix this, um, and that would um, obviate the need for, uh, for for the Supreme Court to to get involved. Um, 
And I, and I think that, you know, as we, as we move towards the end of the discussion, I do think that that is one of the things that this decision may do is actually um, put a little bit of fire underneath some of the people who have thought about whether a statutory solution is needed, because it kind of points to, although I said earlier, it points to the need for SEC rulemaking as distinct from enforcement, but even more definitive and better would be congressional um, uh, congressional activity and an actual statute, because this is all just a matter of statutory interpretation and Congress can, can react. Now, obviously we've got a lot of different views um, in Congress, but I don't think it's necessarily something that is as polarized as a lot of other issues in politics today. Um, the major questions doctrine itself is a very polarizing issue that easily falls into, you know, Republican, Democrat, right, left categories. But regulation of crypto generally, I think, is a much closer call. So again, the statutory resolution takes the major questions doctrine off the table because there that is Congress speaking. And so major questions is no longer an issue. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, I just think I just think including, I do think that um that should put a little bit of pressure on Congress and on individuals who have been looking at this uh, for the need for legislation in the area. Yeah, I, and I think you know it, it could be that this decision and and the way it, it turned out, which frankly has has made a number of, of positions on both sides a bit cloudy, right? Um, yeah. That maybe those who at the at the regulator and those in Congress who were saying we don't need any new laws, we don't need any clarity. You know, maybe this maybe this changes their view, and maybe there's an impetus on both sides to try and come to some kind of um, definitive solution instead of having um, some folks saying nope, perfectly clear, we don't need new laws, and others saying hey, you're chasing this industry out of the U.S. We need new laws yeah. because because things aren't clear. Yeah, I do yeah. think um, one thing I just want to loop back for a second to the programmatic sales, because I I would say that this is a narrow window. So I wouldn't say yes. Yes, it is. I would, in my view, a positive for the platforms, but it is programmatic. Right. The blind bid asks. And I think um, it. I would just caution our listeners in general um, and all caveats apply from the intro about this not being legal advice. But you know the question of whether you have blind bid asks and it's just an algorithm making making a decision that I would distinguish from an IEO right an initial exchange offer I wouldn't take this decision just because it didn't talk about a more traditional kind of ICO or IEO to say that initial sales where you're marketing to everyone as a primary sale that that still wouldn't potentially um, involve, um, in certain instances, a Section 5 violation, right? Um, this programmatic sales, they didn't call it platform sales. They called it programmatic. And I believe that that's meaningful and that 
if it, if there were contracts and white papers and terms and conditions and the like, and if there was active marketing to those purchasers by the seller, we could end up in a situation where those, those sales look more like the outcome for the quote institutional sales, which here it was institutional because that was based on my understanding who the actual purchasers were for that right? That was the character of them back beginning in 2013. Um, and I, I would just caution against thinking that this is just free reign to do initial exchange offers. Yep. yep. Do you agree, disagree, have other thoughts uh, on that? I think so. I, I, I think, I think I lean toward, um, a view where there might be more latitude to do IEOs because, um, I mean, the, what, what will be essential is creating anonymity um, and making sure that in principle, the buyers don't know whether they are buying from the issuer or from a secondary seller. And I think you can do that and it would still be an IEO. Um, I think it's a very um, strange criterion to impose, totally. but that is what the decision does. And so as long as the buyer doesn't know who he or she or it is buying from, in theory, um, you insulate yourself from Section 5 attack in that way. And you can design IEOs so that the buyer never knows whether they are buying from the company or, you know, or the issuer, the sponsor, let's call it, um, uh, or the active participant to use SEC talk, or from a secondary, you know, an unaffiliated secondary seller. As long as you can design the, your IEO that way, I think you've got a lot of latitude under this order. I mean, I, I would say it's all facts and circumstances, and perhaps there are some paths through. Um, but I would still tend to take a, a cautious view at this point, at least until we know a little bit more and at least until um, the dust settles a bit and we've yeah. had a few more days to analyze. <laughs> That's my my view. Yeah. But, yeah. but a lot um, of confusion, a lot of confusion. Not uh, uh, I wouldn't say it was it's a it's a model of clarity or intellectual consistency, to put it mildly. And. And I think it does leave leave market participants with a lot of confusion, but still on balance, I think the winners here are the platforms and the exchanges, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, so I think we could continue this forever, although we might lose all of our <laughs> all of our listeners at some point. Um, so we'll have to pick this up a different day. But as all of our listeners can hear. Um, Jeff and I have a fantastic time tossing these, these questions and turning these issues over um, and, and really wrestling with them. So we hope you've enjoyed listening in on our, on our conversation today. And we welcome any questions and look forward to next time. And who knows what the next week may bring. And Josh, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Oh, my pleasure. You were fantastic. And there you have it, our hot takes for today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Josh from Linklaters. Join us next time 
on Crypto Facto with Josh Clayman.